to Better Place, Talking International Law with me, Jonathan Colebe, uh, Senior Lecturer at RMIT University, coming to you from Melbourne, Australia. Uh, wherever you are on our beautiful planet, uh, thank you for joining us. We hope you're all safe and well. In this episode of Better Place, I am absolutely delighted to welcome Maha Abdallah uh, to the Better Place conversation to talk a little international law and human rights. Uh, with us. Um, hello, Maha. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you for hosting me. Where are you tuning in from? I am currently in Jerusalem. Awesome. Maha is a human rights practitioner and advocate. Um, and she's currently very engaged on researching and advocating on business and human rights issues, uh, in particular in, in conflict affected areas. Um, including how we go about holding large multinational companies accountable for their involvement in, in human rights abuses. Um, uh, full confession, Maha and I crossed paths in Geneva uh, in, in late 2019, actually at the United Nations Annual Forum on, on Business and Human Rights. Uh, one of the reasons Maha was there was to pick up an award, I believe, if I remember correctly? Yes, that is true. I mean, on, on behalf of the organization that I used to work at the al the Palestinian Human Rights Organization. Yeah. And hopefully we can circle back around and you can tell us a little bit about al and and that um, well-deserved uh, award that you received. Um, but before we get stuck in, if I may, a little bit more of a formal introduction. Maha, you have an amazing CV and you do um, incredible uh, human rights work. So. I just wanted to give the audience a bit more of a formal taste um, of, of who you are. Maha Abdallah is an international advocacy officer at the Cairo Institute for Human Rights Studies, formerly a senior legal researcher at Al Haq, focusing on business and human rights and corporate accountability in occupied territory and conflict affected settings. Um, primarily, she was focused on the role of corporations in the unlawful exploitation of natural resources complicity and involvement in human rights abuses. Uh, she was elected to the ESCRnet, the International Network for Economic, Social um, and Cultural Rights. Uh, she was elected to the ESCRnet board in 2018 and serves on the project advisory group of ESCRnet's corporate capture project and on the conflict and ESCR advisory group. She received her Masters of Laws from the Irish Center for Human Rights and her BA in Political Science from the American University in Cairo. What did I miss, Maha? I mean, plenty, uh, but <laughs> anything in particular I missed? Uh, I think this is quite comprehensive, I would say. We can go into some of the details later on during our conversation. Brilliant. And, and uh, as, as I always say, my obligatory follow-up question after such a stellar CV is, what's your favorite uh, ice cream flavor? Mm, that's a tough question. <laughs> we we can't continue. Chocolate. <laughs> chocolate, okay. Yeah, yeah, plain, okay. plain chocolate, yeah. Okay. Don't, don't, don't get down, that's cool, that's a classic. 
I wasn't expecting this question, but sure. Um, and I'm just curious, uh, I, I, so many folks around the world uh, are living under restrictions because of coronavirus, even lockdown. Um, and many of us are taking up hobbies or, or getting distracted. Uh, have you taken up any coronavirus hobbies uh, in the past few months? Certainly, I have uh, uh, gardening and planting. I think it's the first time I ever do it and I got a bit obsessed with it, but I'm finding a lot of uh, peace and therapy in, uh, in uh, gardening. Although we do live in an apartment, but uh, we have some large windows and a balcony, so I'm able to practice that hobby. And, uh, you know, the nursery at home is growing and growing each month. Are so you growing, you're growing vegetables or flowers or? Mm, mostly flowers, but some herbs also, you know, like mint, basil, rosemary. Ah. The, the essentials like for a good Middle Eastern cook. Exactly, exactly. Oh, that sounds great. We have pesky possums here, so every time I plant my herbs, they get eaten. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's anyway, unfortunate. <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, now, Maha, uh, on to more serious stuff, perhaps. Uh, Better Place is a series we interview uh, international law practitioners, people that do international law. I certainly consider you uh, an international law practitioner. Uh, I'm wondering, does that label sit well with you? Is that... How, how do you describe sort of your professional pursuit? So I'm not really a big fan of labels generally, and that's something that is uh, well known about me, especially among my social, small social circle and friends that I try to avoid labels as much as possible because I don't like to categorize myself or people within a certain box or, you know, limitations. But I think... What I would usually use is uh, a human rights advocate. I feel like that brings in uh, more uh, dimensions of what it takes to uh, work for human rights towards realizing human rights and advocate for them. But definitely a major and integral part of my work is international law and trying to understand but also bridge the the theory to practice and then to influence the life and to realize a change on the ground for people and uh, regardless of where they are mm. and uh, so much of your professional focus you said you're tuning in from jerusalem so much of your professional focus has been on um, the pursuit of palestinian uh, rights is that is that right Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I think this is where my uh, my interest and my passion for for human rights and uh, for for advocacy, social justice, and so on. This is where it all started, just from by virtue of who I am, where I'm from, what I've uh, witnessed, what I've seen growing up, and so on. So. Um, uh... So, well, I, I don't want any, any assumptions made. So, so can, we, can we unpack that a little bit? Who are you? Uh, what did you see growing up? Or you, all, all those things you just said. Um, I, I guess, I guess I, well, I, I, I think I'm curious to know, and, and so is the audience, but um, yeah, what drives you? What, what led you to this, this career to become a human rights advocate? Mm. I, again, I think 
quite a, a, a major influence to where I am today is uh, my uh, my identity, the fact that I am a Palestinian woman who has lived in Jerusalem almost my entire life, besides my academic uh, uh, years in Egypt and then in, uh, in Ireland. And I think that has shaped uh, a lot my uh, academic interests, but also my professional uh, pursuit in the field of human rights. And uh, I mean, um, the situation in uh, Palestine is probably quite known for many around the world, but uh, it is a situation of a prolonged occupation. It's, uh, it's not only... Um, about uh, you know territorial disputes and ter conquering land and territory and resources, but it is about people and people's lives, and it has had um, a lot of impact. Obviously, not only on my life, but on the lives of millions of uh, Palestinians and others who live in this uh, area in, in in Palestine. And uh, I think that's why. I, uh, I decided at uh, one point, or I was inspired at one point, that uh, there are tools and there are ways that we could make the situation better. And uh, we could uh, resolve things hopefully one day within uh, a standard or within a framework that would guarantee everyone their rights and their, uh, their, their ability to live in dignity, peace, and uh, in a safe environment, and so on. So I think that's why um, I, I eventually chose this career. It was never deliberate. I never, you know, I, I, it was never that I woke up one day and I was like, I'm going to become a human rights advocate. I think as a child, I always liked to write. I always liked to express um, uh, myself in writing. And uh, it was between journalism, political science, or human rights. And I never, as a kid, didn't really understand the difference between all these three. So uh, when I got to university, I thought that political science might be, you know, the way into opening this world. Yeah, and journalism, political science, and, 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 and the law or human rights. I mean, the, the, it seems to me that so many of your job descriptions um, sort of allow the merger of, of all three disciplines and skill sets involved. Um, Certainly. So I know you said that you didn't wake up one day and, and the career sort of was, you know, you saw the vision, but, but was there a moment? Like, can, can you think back, what, what put you on this path? Was, was, there a mm. particular, was there a particular morning where you woke up and said, screw it, I'm focusing on this? I don't remember that particular moment, to be honest, but I do remember that at one point in, uh, in my undergrad years where I was uh, more focused on maybe, you know, looking into being involved in the diplomatic sphere rather than the human rights and international law sphere. But uh, eventually, I think I realized the limitations of, you know, working solely in, in a political context and as as uh, as uh, as ideal as it uh, may sound, I think I thought that you know taking the internet like purely the international law framework and the human rights uh, framework would be more beneficial, and it would allow me the freedom to genuinely express what I believe in, but also what is really happening on the ground. Yeah, mm. um, and make a difference on the ground too, because um, that's Hopefully. that that. 
uh, certainly what I know about you, Maha. Uh, you're all about the, the practical impact. Um, uh, I'm Which curious. It's hard to see. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious if I may though go back. Um, so you were born in Jerusalem, you raised in Jerusalem, proud Palestinian. Um, uh, you went to Cairo for for your BA. I was just wondering what led you there, and then even perhaps more curiously, all the way to Ireland to get your LLM, your Masters of Laws. So, what led you on that international uh, route for your um, higher education? I think I've always wanted to study abroad. I, I always knew that I would not be in Palestine to study, not because we don't have great universities. We do very, have very prestigious and uh, progressive universities here in, in different fields. But um, I've always been keen on traveling, meeting new people, having different experiences, learning about new cultures, languages, uh, ideals, and so on. So. Um, and I got an opportunity after my uh, high school to uh, get a scholarship to uh, to to you know to to uh, study my to do my BA in uh, at the American University in Cairo. I thought that that would be a great uh, place to start. It's uh, it's multi, like you know it's very cult the multicultural place with uh, foreign students coming from all over to study Arabic, to study about the Middle East, to study Egyptology and all of these things. So I found it to be a fascinating place. Also, one one other reason why I was particularly keen on being in Egypt is. I thought that it would be a good way to also connect to the rest of the Arab world. That's something that we're often so isolated from living in Palestine because although we live, you know, very close to Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Sudan, but we're unable to do these visits because of uh, the different political restrictions that have been imposed and the divisions in the, um, in the Arab world and so on. And it was indeed a great time where I was able to create amazing friendships with uh, many uh, Arab uh, students who have turned into family, some of them, and who I'm still in contact with. So I feel like my Arab identity was also uh, benefiting a lot at the time. Yeah, um, that's really interesting. And, and so many folks that I have spoken that have got human rights or international law careers have had that uh, early on in, in life, that international travel mm -hmm. um, and those international experiences. Uh, I think there is something to, to that. Um, and, but then you returned, you, you returned home to Palestine uh, and I believe uh, you joined uh, straight after your LLM, you, you went and joined Al-Haq, is that right? So uh, after I finished my uh, undergrad in uh, in Egypt, I stayed there for six to seven months and I did uh, an internship as a legal advisor at an organization called the Africa and Middle East Refugee Assistance, AMERA. And uh, it was focused on providing legal advice and assistance to refugees coming from Sudan, South Sudan, Eritrea, Ethiopia, in some cases, Iraq and Syria. Uh, and, and tell them like how to maneuver the UNHCR system, how uh, we could like, you know, supporting them in their cases and so on. 
And that was also uh, very like a turning point as well in my life where I realized that, you know, this is something that I would really like to do. I, I, yeah. I want to help people. I, I, if I have, you know, language skills or some legal skills or some research skills that could be beneficial for people, that's certainly something that I would, uh, that I would like to do. So I was there until July or August 2013, and then I came back home to Palestine because of all the political also unrest in Egypt at the time. So I had to depart the internship a month or two early. And I joined the Al-Haq Legal Research and Advocacy Department initially as an intern as well. And you've worked and, your way uh, up, huh? Yeah, and that's where I uh, learned a lot about first Palestine, but also about international law, about how theory becomes practice. And, you know, uh, I developed all these uh, skills in legal research and writing, uh, you know, for, for, uh, for, for submissions, for reports and so on. And then uh, luckily it was, uh, it was like I was lucky enough that uh, the organization also wanted me to stay on. And I stayed on initially as a research assistant and then as a legal researcher. And then I went to Ireland after three years of uh, practical experience with Al-Haq to the Irish Center for Human Rights to do my uh, LLM in international yeah. human rights law. And then came back to Al-Haq. Yes, and then and, I returned back to Al-Haq. Yeah. And Al where, where you helped lead the, the research and advocacy, um, in particular around business, uh, and business and human rights under occupation. Um, so I'm curious, uh, so al-haq means the law, uh, I think mm -hmm. if I've, I've got the translation correct. So very prominent human rights organization um, uh, that deals in, though one of the most, well, let's call it politically sensitive, the most, one of the most intractable, protracted, um, enduring conflicts, you know, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Is there much appetite for a human rights conversation on, on either side? Mm. Let me go back a bit. So al-haq means the right. So, you okay. know, the, the right to or the right in general. But um, going back to your question, I think um, the... The, the situation, like the reality is, is uh, not very encouraging for anything, to be honest. It's a, it's, it's a dire reality. It's very gloomy and it keeps getting gloomier and gloomier over the years. And that's something that, is, um, that has put people's hopes down, that has created a lot of frustration and, uh, and a lot of, uh, you know, feeling um, that nothing will really change the reality and and that's not a great place to be at especially when you have such a young population as well amongst palestinians you know 60 or 70 percent are youth but the situation or the environment is deliberately being made more difficult coercive encourage them encouraging them either to leave or assimilate in a certain uh, context or reality so is there much conversation and space for human rights? Always. I think Palestinians and especially those in the human rights uh, field and working in human rights organizations do genuinely have big hopes and high expectations from international law. And me personally, 
I, I might have mentioned this earlier, but I do see international law as being one of the main tools that will result in a just uh, solution or resolution on the long term, but it has to be depoliticized and it has to be really taken advantage. It's a great framework. It's not perfect, but it's a great framework that should be applied in order to, uh, you know, make sure that people have access to their basic rights, people have, are able to uh, exercise their freedoms and their, you know, their rights are genuinely guaranteed. So there's always space for human rights and international law in the society that I grew up with, that's for sure. Um, um, wow, so there's so many ways I want to take the conversation, Maha. But let me, let me, um, uh, let me ask you though, so, so you have these wonderful hopes and expectations uh, for the role of international law in resolving and addressing the, the, the conflict and, and, and the lack of rights. Um, in, 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 uh, of Palestinians. Um, but how is that married up to the reality, I guess? Uh, I'm curious, uh, on a daily basis, I presume, Al-Haq would have, and you yourself, uh, would have been presented many challenges to quite literally just even have a human rights conversation. Um, could, could you describe a few of those sort of more practical daily challenges uh, that you guys confronted? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've, uh, I haven't worked as much in the field as my other colleagues have in the field, meaning like going to the field, speaking to persons affected, let's say by house demolitions, by killings of their loved ones or family members, by uh, land confiscation. And, you know, the violations are, are, a lot and many, unfortunately. But uh, at the same time, I have been exposed to the field and to, to, to people that have been directly affected by these and me myself have been at one point in life. So, and I know that there is always the question like, what would a human rights organization do to me? Especially if you're not providing any services or financial compensation, you're not a humanitarian agency. So if the house is demolished, for example, you're not there to give a tent or to give shelter or to give uh, food or water or an alternative. You're there to document and you're there to, uh, to, to, uh, to monitor the situation, uh, the series of events that have led up to this and so on. And it's hard for people not to question you and tell you like, what, why are you doing? Especially if they, you know, you know, for somebody who has just lost their home or their land, or um, a person that they care about, it's really hard to believe in a justice system that will not, you know, mm. bring you anything in the short run, not even in the medium run, but we still hope that it would do it in the longer run. And that's why, you know, it's important for, for any human rights organization operating here, you hear a lot from coming from them about the importance of accountability, the importance of justice, because that's something that people are also hanging on a lot in Palestine. And, and so after those challenges of, of collecting the data and, 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 and doing the research, I'm curious about that next phase of your role, which was the advocacy role, right? So you, you research, you write the reports, you, you, you collect the, the, the facts, collect the data, but then you present it. Um, and you advocate, and I presume there are 
Uh, well, I, I mean, I don't want to presume. I, I'd love to hear sort of what is that advocacy side of your your human rights uh, practitioner mm. role sort of look like? Do you sit down with the Palestinian Authority? Do you sit down with Israeli authorities? Um, and are they receptive to the reports that that, that mm. have been produced and the concerns raised? I mean, as you mentioned, like uh, after colleagues who are experts collect the data from the field, my role was more in the, in the field of, you know, analyzing this data and looking at it from what what violations does this data constitute under international law, whether human rights law, humanitarian law, and who are the perpetrators who are responsible, who are the persons affected or victims in this case, if there's a trend, a policy, a systemic way of, of uh, seeing this uh, specific violation or a list of violations and so on. And, you know, that would be developed either in the format of long reports or shorter briefs or other type of uh, publications and yes again as you mentioned you know this part of it was also to bring this to uh, concerned parties and stakeholders that may and and technically would have an influence to change it or to uh, to uh, pressure the specific authorities to uh, stop using a like a certain policy or a certain practice against Palestinians and so on. And uh, we, uh, like in, in my previous role at Al-Haq, I never, uh, like as an organization, we never had any direct engagement or advocacy with the Israeli authorities, mainly because it's, you know, it's something that uh, is probably uh, going to, uh, not yield into anything and as an organization that has been deliberately targeted by the Israeli authorities over the past uh, few decades like since its existence actually and you know the the smear campaigns the attacks against the organization and its staff I like you know it's it's not an ideal situation uh, at one point in its life uh, Al-Haq used to uh, take cases to the Israeli courts but it stopped because you know, it real. You know, as an organ, it was an organizational decision that it's um, it's it's not achieving anything, and the culture of impunity is the same. And we're just uh, as an organization, the organization was just contributing to an unjust system that is legitimizing what is already illegitimate. So there, there's never been direct uh, advocacy with the Israeli authorities as occupying power. Uh, or as anything else. But at the same time, a lot of the advocacy that I was involved in targeted international uh, audience and the international community, whether it be diplomatic missions that are based here or diplomatic missions that are in Geneva, the UN system, um, you know, certain bodies and mechanisms at the European Union or capital levels. And, uh, and, and some advocacy at a U.S. level. But I mean, again, I worked at a local organization, uh, although it yeah. would be considered big, but given the, 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 the thematic issues and yeah. uh, stuff that we cover, we, we, we were still restrained on human resources. So um, ideally, we would be everywhere in the world, in Latin America, Africa, the U.S., and so on. But it's just, uh, it was impossible. But uh, 
Yeah, and I mean, uh, also, I mean, besides advocacy with, with policymakers and diplomats and so on, it, it was also, it's always been important to also connect with networks, with practitioners in the field who are working on other uh, similar situations and other human rights organizations mm. and social justice groups all over the world. So I'm curious, I mean, it's obviously there's a lot of depressing news that comes out of um, out of the Middle East. And um, even what you just described sounds like um, a challenge, um, a, a challenging operating environment, shall we say, for a human rights organisation. So was there, is there any sort of success that stands out in your mind, sort of like big or small, sort of like a human rights advocacy success? story mm. that you can sort of you know in those times of darkness sort of hang your hat on and remember hey we did that we could do it again mm. to be honest it's really really um not only difficult it's unreasonable to talk about success in the context that we're operating with because you know as long as there continues to be an occupation as as long as there continues to be a, a system that you know of an institutionalized racism and discrimination against a certain group and people and as long as the 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 the, the military the militarization and the dehumanization of people here particularly palestinians continues it's really, really hard for me as Maha, the Palestinian living in Jerusalem, to speak about successes, even if it's, you know, technical, uh, there has been some technical successes. But again, there, yes, and I think in the advocacy uh, work that I have been involved in, at, you know, at the UN in Geneva, for example, there has been certainly some moments where I felt like, my work and the organization's work is going somewhere and it's affecting um, people and policymakers to adopt certain resolutions or certain recommendations in their uh, in their in, in their let's say in the universal periodic review of the state of israel or in their um, in in the human rights council and so on so there has been points like that and uh, and that has been certainly you know uh, points that gave uh, me but also my colleagues then uh, a lot of uh, renewed energy let's yeah. say for sure yeah. I think those are important I, I totally um, acknowledge and, and want to validate what you were saying before about the um, the situation over there but I think as as human beings as individuals that are, are sometimes um, you know, feeling like banging heads against walls is, is uh, you know, um, what we do. Uh, it's important to also have those small, small, small successes. So, yeah, well done. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of successes, I, I wanted to mention um, uh, your work at the, the, the UN uh, and in particular, uh, the award that you received and, and perhaps an opportunity for you to talk about the work that you do in terms of business respecting mm -hmm. human rights and international humanitarian law, the laws of war. Because you mentioned before, in terms of advocacy, you mentioned the UN, you mentioned countries, you mentioned militaries, you didn't mention businesses. And yes. so, but that is actually now a huge focus of your work um, to, to actually encourage businesses to become more compliant with uh, international human rights. Is that right? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And the more I uh, delve into this uh, specific uh, area of focus, the more I realize how much the private sector owes to the people as well, and you know how how we should be pursuing the private sector as much as we do with states, because unfortunately the reality is that they are contributing and they are involved in human rights abuses and violations of international law everywhere so can you can you give us sorry Maha, sorry i didn't mean to no. cut you off no, no, uh, no. I, I was just can you give us an example uh, like a, a real life case study you can either mention the name or, or not but a real life sort of scenario of what you're talking about in terms of business and and human rights abuses yeah, definitely. I mean, I, again, my, my focus of research on this specific topic has, uh, you know, focused on the occupied Palestinian territory and how business enterprises uh, have been involved in protracting the, the occupation and kind of allowing it to prosper and to be profitable and to, uh, con you know, to, to continue to, to violate certain rights. And um, I mean, it, it varies, like some companies would be involved in maintaining some sort of a security apparatus by, by providing uh, um, equipment, tools, uh, surveillance uh, equipment, and so on, and, and technologies as well. But then you look at other uh, companies that are more involved in, um, in, in the unlawful exploitation of natural resources like water, land, stone reserves, and, um, and uh, other, uh, other uh, resources like the ones we would have in the Dead Sea, for example. So there's, there's really plenty of, uh, of, of ways that companies can and have been involved in uh, numerous violations of international law, some of them that you know amount to war crimes and uh, grave breaches of international law, given the, the context of occupation that we have here. I mean, other examples would include the involvement of certain companies in providing equipment and tools to carry out home, home demolitions and therefore the displacement and forcible transfer of uh, some uh, communities and, and uh, populations. So, I mean, the, the, there's, again, there's like plenty uh, of, of uh, case studies to look at and there's been a lot that has uh, been written uh, about this issue. It, like specifically looking at the occupied Palestinian territory. But unfortunately, the problem is that we see companies continuously evading their responsibility and their liability. So I, I was going to ask, have you, have you confronted, have you, have you put these facts and, and your, your legal analysis before companies and, and what has their response been? Yeah, definitely. We we have like we have done it you know, previously as part of my work with uh, Al Haq. We have communicated with specific companies to tell them, listen, you're operating, for example, in a, in an illegal settlement, and settlements are illegal under international law for one, two, three, four reasons. This is what happens when you, as a private entity, you're contributing to this or you're involved in this because there's also different levels of involvement that varies between, you know, di direct or indirect involvement, complicity in the violation as well and, or not. So 
it, it really varies and you have to be like meticulous about what each company is doing. You can't put every company, all, all companies in one box of, you know, being complicit in, in all uh, violations. But yeah, so, so that has been done and um, several times, at least in, in, uh, in, in uh, my time. And I, I believe that it continues to date with Al-Haq. And the responses have always been, unfortunately, not satisfying. And there has always been ways uh, that uh, justify the company's behavior or the company's operations in occupied territory. Uh, although we have provided not only facts, but also evidence that uh, like to what they are contributing to or to what they are involved. Mm. And it's often hiding behind the military orders that are, um, you know, give, uh, issued by the Israeli uh, civil administration, which runs the, the, the occupied, <clears throat> sorry, Palestinian territory, or it hides behind uh, policies and practices that have uh, long been used by the occupying power here. So for the company, it's something that has been, we can say, normalized. So what, what do we need, Maha? So, I mean, um, if we take your analysis um, at face value, we take the, the company's responses as essentially a shrug of the shoulders. Thanks, but no thanks. What, what's the missing link? What do we need? It sounds like some more robust accountability mechanisms or and did you have any in mind? Uh, it doesn't sound like there's any joy through the Israeli court system. So wh where where would the accountability be found? I I definitely I mean with you know accountability within the Israeli judicial system is something that is really um, uh, it's 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 a system that hasn't been created to grant uh, justice for Palestinians. This is as simply as I would summarize it with. But I'm sure you know there are experts in this field that could talk about this more eloquently than I would. So let alone for for you know justice or accountability for violations that are being uh, committed by businesses and private actors in the occupied territory, which you know eventually are benefiting the occupying power and all of its um, uh, work and tools and and, uh, and projects here. So I think looking at the international uh, arena and what the international law could provide us, I think that's something that I would immediately look at when I look at the situation in Palestine from that angle. I would look at universal jurisdiction, for example, and you know being able to hold companies accountable in other uh, in other countries where where possible. I would look at uh, when when we're talking about multinational corporations as, as well, especially. I would look at their home states and how much the local legislations and regulations are compatible in a way with with international law but in a way to protect victims of of violations of these companies and i think with um the work that's being done globally around national action plans of each country and each state that's something that although you know it's 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 not the most binding or most uh, yeah. <laughs> strict of uh, of yeah. mechanisms but I mean, Annie, we it's can something. see a bit of yeah. It's 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 a basis for something bigger. And I think with the push from activists and civil society, but also sometimes parliamentarians and so on, we could come to something that could be more yeah. rigid from that. 
But at the same time, I would also look at the UN treaty process as key to uh, to ensuring that uh, businesses stop escaping okay. accountability. So, so you like you like the the business and human rights the, the treaty that's being drafted at the United Nations. Uh, you, you you endorse that process. You think it's going well? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I personally think it's. Uh, it's a worthwhile process. I know that it's going to be very, very lengthy and it's going to be very complicated and it's going to take uh, a lot of uh, genuine efforts from states, especially in order for us to get to a point where we are, you know, reaching uh, a proper draft of the treaty. And uh, I have been involved in the work, you know, on behalf of Al Hauk, surrounding the, the treaty and I continue to be involved in it with ESCRnet but also with my current place of work and we have pushed a lot for the inclusion of uh, um, in, you know protections and rights and the, the framework generally of the international humanitarian law into the right. treaty because we can't only talk about human rights law when we're uh, when we're discussing such a great and what should be a great and comprehensive uh, right. a universal treaty we can't just right. talk about human rights law when we know that businesses have in the past and continue to be involved in uh, conflict areas and they have in some instances fueled these conflicts and started them and uh, you know, there's there's a lot of examples, not only in the Middle East, but also from around the world that would speak about why we need to hold businesses accountable within the IHL framework as well. And that's something that I would also consider a success in, you know, from the first draft of, of the treaty to where it is now, the additional uh, focus that it has had on IHL and occupied territory specifically, although I know it's nowhere near being perfect yeah. or close to perfect at all and so much needs to be done yes. i completely understand but when you look at the first draft and then yeah. how how lit, like very little and uh, undermining attention it gave to conflict areas and uh, the ihl framework i think now we're at a slightly better place that could take us somewhere further maha i am acutely aware now of the difficulties of interviewing someone about a topic that I also write and think and research about. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm biting my tongue. We have, we, we, we have so much that we could um, and do chat about uh, offline. Um, uh, I, 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 um, I share your hope for a, a business and human rights treaty that is robust and meaningful. I think I'm a little bit more skeptical of the process, but um, uh, yeah. Um, we'll see. I think your, let, let me put it a different way. I think your political science degree uh, will come in in handy um, during the drafting and in the application of any treaty too. Absolutely, absolutely. And I understand why you would be skeptical of the process. I have my own, uh, my own uh, reservations as well. But you know, it's inspiring <clears throat> Sorry, again, it's inspiring to see um, during the negotiation sessions how much civil society is pouring in terms mm. of efforts and resources yeah. into, into this treaty process. And I it's agree, not, but are the businesses pouring in? 
Are businesses no, pouring in a not. similar amount? Right. So, no, of course not. I think, uh, but, yeah. Yeah, and I would see it as, uh, you know, I mean, civil society is still powerful and I would like to keep a positive uh, and hopeful uh, uh, view that, you know, united as civil society like around the world towards one target we will be able to achieve something but again i understand the reservations and the complications let me segue to the award you received last year speaking of the united nations so you were at the annual forum for business and human rights to accept on behalf of al haq a human rights award could you just tell us a little bit about that which was really celebrating your great work Yes, I mean, I, I was there with the team, my, my, uh, my colleagues from Al Haq, and we were there, including our executive director at the, I mean, when I was there uh, at the time. And it was, uh, the award was granted on the basis of the organization's work on business and human rights. And, uh, you know, the, the organization has been for more than a decade and a half now, I would say, like, robustly focusing on issues surrounding corporate accountability, business and human rights in, uh, in, uh, in Palestine. But I feel like also the work has uh, influenced a lot of other civil society in, in the region to, um, to also look at this uh, framework and, and, and the available mechanisms, whether at a UN level or domestic levels, regional and so on. So um, yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was it was great to uh, for the organization for Al Haq to receive that as a Palestinian organization, as an Arab organization as well that has been kind of in the lead in the region on on these issues. So it is uh, definitely uh, it was definitely well well deserved for yeah. the organization, absolutely. And 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 your current role, you, you did leave Al Haq earlier in 2020, and and you've accepted a position now as international advocacy officer for the Cairo Institute for Human Rights. Your role, I understand, it will actually eventually be based, inshallah, in in Brussels. Uh, but right now, because of COVID restrictions, you're in Jerusalem. Are you going to bring that business and human rights focus to your new new role at the Cairo Institute as well? Absolutely. And it's already a work in progress. And I would like to also bring it in with a more regional focus. And uh, especially now that I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still working on human rights in Palestine, but I'm also looking at human rights in Syria and Yemen. And other colleagues in the Cairo Institute are also working on other uh, country situations in the Arab world, Middle East region. So I feel like it could even be a stronger platform to advocate for business and human rights and corporate accountability mm. uh, based on uh, the case studies, based on what's happening in, in, in all of these different countries that we're covering. Absolutely. Right. I believe there's been a, uh, a submission to the ICC, the International Criminal Court uh, Office of the Prosecutor, to look at some company involvement in uh, alleged war crimes. Uh, in particular, mm -hmm. arms suppliers uh, in, in the Yemeni war. Um, th that's a rather grim remit you have, Maha. Um, Palestine, Syria, Yemen. Um, um, uh, are there signs for, of, of hope in, in the Syria and the Yemeni contexts in terms of protecting human rights? 
I mean, I unfortunately, personally, I don't believe there are signs of hope for 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 any genuine change or political change that will result in, you know, better human rights and realizing human rights for 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 Syria or Yemen. And but again, I think a lot of people and a lot of colleagues from organizations that are based either in Syria or work on Syria and Yemen, whether there or in the diaspora, they also hang, you know, to international law and look to it as a framework that could eventually achieve some sort of redress and justice for what's been happening to better the situation in their home countries and so on. Obviously, I can't speak on behalf of Syrians and the Yemeni populations, but um, I, I, I like given uh, the, the growing number of human rights organizations and civil society actors from each context, I feel like there is a strong belief in the, in the, in the international human rights framework and the law and so on. I'm constantly struck when I, I, I can't help but, but um, reflect, Maha, that you have such hope uh, and you put such hope in international law and in human rights. And yet I can't think of um, harder, again, more, more wicked problems and areas uh, to operate in. Uh, it, it's, apart from the gardening, what, 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 what gets you out of bed in the morning to, to go, go back and for more? Mm, that's a good question. I, I personally wonder that myself sometimes, especially at times when I'm not so optimistic about uh, the, the work or the, the framework that I'm operating and towards, you know, realizing some change. But I think that uh, it's a mix. It's a mix of being hopeful. It's a mix of uh, seeing the good in people as well. I feel like I mean, you can't divorce the law from the politics, from humans, from humanity. Where I mean, we're we're not machines that are behind desks, either as politicians or as uh, human rights advocates or academics. We're also humans, and I think, as naive as that may sound, that kind of what drives me every, uh, from, like especially in in the times of. Uh, or the low times of, uh, of my yeah. life, that's for sure. But um, I mean, the situation is getting harder and harder and not only here in Palestine, but I feel like regionally and globally and um, sometimes it's really hard to see these rays of hope, but then, you know, when you think as uh, the law or international law as a tool and you think about and you look at initiatives that groups and people are taking in order to make the world better, whether it's, you know, on an environmental level or social and services level to uh, marginalize people and groups, you know, you feel like these different tools should be able to meet at, at one point and create the change that many of us would want to see yeah. in this world. All right. Quick fire lightning round to wrap up Maha. Heroes. I'm curious, who are your human rights, your international law heroes? 
This is a question that I always think about and I'm very much asked about. And, you know, I, I don't think I like to idealize persons, especially because, you know, in, in I, even if I have a favorite author or writer or practitioner, I don't know them enough. I don't know what they are like behind the papers or behind the lectures that they give and so on. But I can say... Yeah. So, so, but I, what, what I can say is that I've had a lot of people influence uh, my career and uh, influence my uh, direction in life, not only career-wise, but generally. And um, I, I owe it to them, definitely, like whether it's professors and lecturers from uh, from my, my like from my time at uh, at university at, at AUC or at the Irish Center specifically, I think that was also a major turning point for me in how I perceive the law and how I analyze and how I write and so on. And I'm forever grateful for that uh, one year experience that you know still influences every day of my career. I'm also, you know, I, great influencers have been my uh, colleagues at Al-Haq, those who mentored me and those who, uh, you know, were so patient to uh, get me to the level where I am today. But of course, I mean, it's one of the things that I always think about is that they also taught me that it's an ever ongoing learning process. Mm. And especially with the, with the field that we deal with, because... Mm you you need to always analyze and see it from different perspectives and so on maha uh, i i needed to explain the rules of a quick fire lightning round to you maha oh okay. uh, no um no appreciate the 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 the, the, the answer um uh, short uh, answers yeah. now quick fire okay okay i'll try no no so i, I i'm not going to ask you to name names of people but how about the best book you've ever read about human rights? Mm, the best book I've read about human rights. They have been mostly academics, I would say. I would have to look at my library here. Okay. I am terrible with the, with the names. We can come back to it. Yeah. Favorite human yeah. rights, favorite human rights or favorite international law movie? Mm, really Jonathan I'm terrible with the names that's the thing like I would watch and read something and completely forget forget the title but so, Hollywood movie yeah 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 yeah, yeah. I know oh, okay. I know it's I, I'm thinking about ones that I have forget seen movie titles we need to talk about yeah that I do I do book titles movie okay. titles yeah. um <laughs> this this quick fire lightning round is going really well yeah um <laughs> Um, okay, well, how about your favorite international law moment in history? Mm. You, you're, you're a student of international law. I, I was just, does, is there a moment that strikes you as a, oh, that was cool? I think the, the, the you know, the, the beginnings of it and why it all started and Maybe it's not a favorite, but it always reminds me of why we have international law today. And it, uh, it's important to remind others why we have international law today in the way that it is to protect people, to not repeat the mistakes of the past again, 
to put this uh, world, you know, at a more equal basis mm. than it was before. Sorry, mm. that wasn't a quick, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't a moment either. But anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> here you go. This is absolutely quick fire. My penultimate question is a fill in the gap. International law is three words, please. Complete the sentence. International law is three words. Oh, uh, just suggestion. It's not going to be three tool words. One for justice. I would say. That's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> quick fire. All right. My final question, Maha. Um, thank you so much for your time. I'm wondering. Um, there will be a lot of students of international law that that um, that view this and listen to it. So I'm curious. What do you wish you, what advice would you have liked to have received when you were back in, in, in um, undergraduate BA in Cairo or, or over in, uh, in Galway in, at the Irish Centre when you were a university student? What advice would you have liked to have received? I think I would have liked to have a, a scoop into somebody's life doing the work that I'm doing now because I was I wasn't at all sure what it was where I would go what would happen so I think what you're doing now is great and if I were your student I would be very thankful for it uh, well thank you Maha um, uh, for for sharing your story and I think um, yes you're the one that has uh, shared um, and I think it's going to be invaluable um, your story to, to many people that do listen and, and watch this. So, so Maha Abdallah, uh, thank you very much for this interview. Um, thank you, for, uh, good luck in, in your new role in, in, at the Cairo Institute and hopefully you'll get to Brussels at some point and hopefully we'll bump into one another again in Geneva at some time in the future. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, Maha, thank you for advancing human rights uh, advancing Palestinian rights, pursuing justice, um, and making the world a better place. Hopefully. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jonathan, for this. Better Place Talking International Law is produced and edited by Keith Hibbert, advised and supported by Neil Grant, and hosted by Jonathan Kolieb. Music supplied by Ian Post. The Better Place team thank RMIT University for supporting this project, and we acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose unceded land we work. We respectfully acknowledge their ancestors and elders, past, present, and future. Mm -hmm.